Hi, I'm Caroline Amos. And I'm Raymond McAnally. And we are fatigued. (laughs) (laughs) Sadie, thank you so much for spending your precious Sunday morning with us on Fatigued Podcast. No, no problem. It's um, early on a Sunday morning, but I'm, I'm going to give it my best shot. So let's you, see how it goes. <laughs> you're wonderful. We just appreciate your time and effort today. Um, interestingly enough, usually our podcast features two hosts, Caroline and Raymond. And today we actually have subbed out Raymond for our social media coordinator, Laura. So I'm excited to introduce Laura to the world of our podcast. Laura, may- welcome Yes, thank you so much. You may have heard me or seen me on the Instagram if you've checked out a couple of our lives. So thank you um, so much. I'm definitely not Raymond, but I will see if I can fill at least half of his shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Shouldn't be difficult. Um, But that is not the reason we're here to talk today. No offense, Laura. We're here to talk to Sadie. Sadie, do you mind giving us a little bit of a, a, a brief biography about yourself and what you do? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I am the Chief Scientific Officer at Solve Me. Um, it's a nonprofit that's uh, mission is to find a cure for and end MECFS. So um, I'm excited to join you guys today to talk a little bit about the work we've been doing in the long COVID space. Yeah, long COVID. Long COVID is one of the worst things that has long COVID in many ways is often worse than just the regular old COVID. Um, as people are experiencing parosmia, phantosmia, head aches, and uh, loss of taste, smell, everything. Um, so we understand that you are the uh, chief scientific officer of You and Me, correct? Yeah, so the, the You and Me is a registry and biobank. That's the name of our, our registry and biobank that collects uh, patient-reported data and biological samples that are collected together and, and passed on to researchers to drive discovery, essentially, to look at you know what's going wrong in people with disease versus those who are healthy and to try and find out why and to try and develop treatments to, to solve it. Um, and You and Me it sits within uh, Solve MECFS, which is the nonprofit that I mentioned earlier that's focused on, you know, ending the disease. That's incredible. Could you tell us what that, um, what all of those letters stand for? <laughs> yeah. So, um, ME is myalgic and, oh my goodness, I always get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pop quiz you didn't know you were coming for, a pop exactly. quiz. Exactly. Encephalomyelitis. Oh, bless you. <laughs> Um, And CFS is chronic fatigue syndrome. Oh, got it. Chronic fatigue syndrome. That sounds, um, wow, interestingly enough, it's got our podcast name right in the middle of it. Um, Right. Wow. And so uh, you and me, uh, when when was this developed? Was it developed as a response to COVID-19? No. So we established this primarily to understand susceptibility and resilience for people with ME-CFS. Oh God! Okay, God. Now I now I see. Yes. Yeah. So we developed it and launched it in June of 2020, and then when it was clear that some people were having symptoms of long COVID, many of which are very similar to that those seen in MECFS, right? So uh, headache, fatigue, um, um, brain fog, a lot of very similar symptoms. We had this infrastructure, so we had the the digital infrastructure, and we have a mobile symptom tracking app that's tailored for these specific symptoms. So we we just thought, you know, there's an opportunity here to to use this infrastructure to help people who are suffering with long COVID 
track their symptoms and see what's going on with their health. There's also an opportunity for us to be able to compare it to MECFS and see where there are similarities and differences are to see if those two communities could help each other. And you just got a new set of data in, right? So you have some new discoveries with what you've just, and I think I just saw on Instagram, you also reached a pretty high number of people where you're getting data from. Can you tell us about those two things? Yeah, so um, we, our enrollment right now is at 3398, so almost 3400. Whoa. Yeah, so it's exciting. We're mostly, um, it's MECFS, so about 2400 MECFS. And we have about 600 people with COVID who've had COVID. A majority of those people, 88% of that cohort, are people who've got long-term symptoms. Um, and then we have a, a subset who had acute COVID but do not have long-term symptoms. And they're used as kind of a control group to understand what the differences are between those two. And then the rest is healthy controls that, again, we use for comparison purposes. So, yeah, so we're really thrilled by the response. Um, I think, you know, one of the things we did when we were designing this kind of infrastructure was we did it with people who have MECFS and people who have long COVID, right? We didn't just think, oh, this is what they need. We did it with the community and, um, you know, all the design in terms of what data we should collect, how often we should collect it, what the symptom tracking app should look like, how the sliders, you know, it captures your symptoms. So how the sliders should work, like all the details were really done in collaboration with the community. And because of that, we've, we've got really, really good engagement. So I think, you know, 40% of people in the registry are using the, the symptom tracking app on a regular basis, which is every three days, which for people who work in digital health, that's a pretty staggering <laughs> number. Um, you know, we even have like a super user group who are using it every day, like 11% of people are using it every day. So it's the symptom tracking app is helpful because it I'm a big believer that information is power right when you're dealing with an illness you as the individual know more about what you're going through than any other person alive right what your doctor yeah. or your caregiver anyone else so this the symptom tracking app is a way that people can aggregate that information and they can they can graph it over time and they can really see how activities might impact how they're feeling so, you know, you can enter, went for a really long walk or had a stressful day and you can actually see in real time how that's impacting your symptoms. You can take that information to your doctor and it, you know, it, to me, it just it empowers people to feel more in control of what they're dealing with. Oh my God. I love that so much. I mean, I, I almost wish that it was something that we would have to do regardless of trying to track any symptoms. Uh, sometimes I'll feel like garbage and not realize that, oh, I've been eating terribly or, oh, I haven't really done a lot of physical exercise or, oh, I am stressed out because of work. I think that's um, that's really brilliant. When I was looking at the app earlier, I love the sliding scale, particularly when I was going through it. I love that you take into consideration women's menstrual cycles and uh, pregnancy and ovulation and all of that, especially because that information is so often buried or not even collected in other medical studies. So uh, on behalf of vagina owners everywhere, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that you have that in there. That's incredible. Yeah, well, thank you. I, there's evidence actually in MECFS that those things can impact symptomology. So for example, people might have really bad symptoms and then they get pregnant and then all their symptoms resolve. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, or, you know, when people go through menopause, they might have a relapse. So at least in that community, there's a lot of evidence that 
your menstrual cycle is having an impact and it makes sense right like I think anybody who is an owner of a vagina is a what is aware that you know there is you're working on the cycle right and um and yeah it, it definitely impacts how you feel during the course of the month what's oh, really cool it's cool about that app too is that you're helping the individual person but then you're also helping the community collaboratively with that information. So where do you see the information you're gathering with the people that are on the long COVID side? Where do you see some of the um, information going forward? Like what information are you gathering from them that may help them figure out how to help their symptoms? So we're gathering all the symptoms on an ongoing basis in the app, right? And I think people who are in the digital health space call it, it's basically like capturing a moving picture versus a single snapshot, right? Historically, you would go to the doctor, you would have this single data point, a a gazillion things would happen to you between that and your next appointment, and and that's never captured, right? So this is a way to capture that big span of time. So what happens is the information you enter kind of at baseline in the desktop portal gets aggregated with all the symptom data from the tracking app, and then that information is passed on to researchers in a blinded way, right? So it's all um, de-identified um, and aggregated. But then researchers can take the data and say, okay, look, here's here's a population who have long COVID. This is what's going on with them. Here's a population who don't who had a, the acute phase of the disease, and this is what's going on with them. How are they different, right? How how are they pre and post? Um, and then it allows them to start to better understand what's going on. You pair that then with biological samples like a, a blood drawer or, you know, saliva sample. People can then start to say, oh, OK, look, their biology is a little bit different. That's maybe why they were susceptible to having these long term effects. Here's maybe a way we could reverse that. Here's something we could intercede. Right? It's how drug discovery is done. Right. You're looking for the, the aberration, the thing that's different in the person with the disease. And then that enables you to develop a a therapy to target that difference. What's so frustrating about this uh, long COVID is that some people are sort of looking at it going, oh, God, why me? Why did this happen to me? In your studies and your findings and your data, are you finding anything? Are you finding any correlation between the people experiencing long COVID to perhaps other underlying factors people may not be aware of? Not yet. It's so early. So, wow. so early. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there, there will be, right? There's a reason why people are susceptible or resilient to long-term effects of any disease. I think the other really interesting thing about long COVID is not everybody has the same symptom clusters, right? Mm. So, some people might have cardiac pulmonary issues. Some people might be really heavy in like orthostatic intolerance where, you know, they can't stand and move around very easily without feeling dizzy. Um so I, I I personally just think that there's there's lots of different subtypes within the bracket of long COVID. We see that in MECFS, right? Which is why the registry to me is so absolutely critical. Unless you can start to understand using data the different subtypes and, and why people what people are experiencing and why you, you can't get to any kind of cause or effect. Wow. Oh my God. That's one of gosh, this, this virus is such a jerk. It's such a tricky little thing. I can't. It's so awful, isn't it? Yeah. Have you, have you had COVID by any chance? No, I have not. Thankfully. Congratulations. That's awesome. (laughs) Fingers crossed. it, it, It stays that way. 
We, I think too, this is obviously in just our time frame, the first time that with an international pandemic with the ability to connect instantly with people across the world. So as far as data is concerned, this might be the obviously the first time that such a big event has happened and the ability to get so much information from so many people. Do you guys have goals of how many people you want registered for chronic fatigue syndrome or long COVID? Yeah, so our goal right now, we're trying to enroll um, about 50 to 60 a week. That's our goal across all of the cohorts, and we usually meet that. Um, obviously, the more information you have, the better. Um, I think the, the, the other thing that we've been really, really focused on is this concept of data harmonization. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that terminology, but it basically means, say you guys want to collect data on long covid you say, okay, I'm going to collect it in this way. And then I say, okay, I'll collect it in the same way. And then that way you're, you can give me your data. I can give you my data. And instead of me having 20 people and you having 20 people, we've now got 40 people. Mm. But, and it's because we've collected it in the same way. And so uh, that's really my soapbox. We've been going out to all of the different people who are collecting information on long COVID and saying, hey, this is how we're doing it. We're going to be transparent. This is the information that we're collecting. These are the, the surveys we're using. This is the way that we're, um, the scales that we're using. Would you do it in a, same, in, the, in a similar way, even if it's not every single data point collected in the same way? Can we get to a core set of data that's collected in the same way? Because the last thing we need are data silos, right? We don't, how we're going to be able to figure this out to your point, Laura, about the number of people who, who are available, you know, who have this illness, we've got to work together. We've got to work together globally, right? We've got to get as much information as possible, share it in as transparent a way as possible to understand this as quickly as possible. And so that's something that we're really driving for with the registry. That's I'm awesome. so inspired just hearing you talk about the fact that it is like it is a community effort. Everybody has to be included. It reminds us a few weeks ago, we interviewed this man. Uh, his name is Nick, who created VaccineSpotter.org. Mm. And it just scans all of the pharmacies and just like it's like a one stop shop where you can actually like na- narrow in your results. Like, OK, I know I want the Pfizer and I only need the second dose. Where can I get it closest to me? And this dude just started this on his spare time and he's got all of his data and everything available publicly. And he's like, if anybody wants to help me with this, if anybody wants to plug in more pharmacies, like be my guest, here we go. I'm so inspired by hearing everybody really working together, watching all these countries gather together to try and find a common cure. I mean, it's it's really inspiring, especially in one of the darkest times of all of our lives. I love oh, that. I mean, I mean, it's in, in the innovation and the sense of community. I think has been staggering. Just the yeah. time, the time to vaccine development, and the the you know the willingness of government, private enterprise collaboration. I mean, it's it's just unprecedented, right? The innovation yeah. and the drive and the sense of community. And I think you know the grass. What I love about long the long COVID community is just the grassroots nature of it. People are like, this is how I'm feeling. I'm going to aggregate this information. I'm going to throw it up there. There's there's no firewall. There's no, I'm going to wait and publish it in a scientific journal. It's just like, let's get this information out, out there as quickly as possible. Because to come back to what I said before, right, information is power. Information is empowering. And information is how we learn what's going on and we figure out how to stop it. Yeah. And so there's no, there is no time to waste. We need to collect it, share it analyze it, 
you know, get to a treatment. Oh my God. It's really, it's really cool. Hey, did you always feel, so your PhD is in molecular biology, which I know nothing about, but did you, did you always lean towards the science data things as far as your background? Yeah. I mean, I, I've always been in the kind of the science biology field pretty quickly after my PhD. I wanted to move away from the theoretical and closer to the clinic. So I, I went straight into pharma and did clinical development, which is where you figure out how to design clinical trials and, and figure out, you know, what's the right pop- patient population for this, for this drug and how, what's the best way to figure out if it works. Um, in the cancer space. So I spent most of my career in the cancer space. And that's really where you saw the impact of big data, right? Big data is just like a lot of data that allows you to understand things more clearly. You too probably don't remember this, but there was a time when breast cancer was like a single disease. You got breast cancer and you had breast cancer. And now because of data, because of the, the volume of information that we have on breast cancer, we know that it's I don't even know, 10, 15 different diseases. And each of those little diseases has a different cause. And that there is a therapy which can target those individual breast cancers within the umbrella of breast cancer. And now it's allowed, you know, for the most part, breast cancer is a chronic disease. People either are cured or they live with it for you know 20 years. And it's really because of the power of information, right? And wow. so... So you take something like that, right? And then, you know, I came to work at Solve three years ago, and it, you look at the heterogeneity that exists in in this disease in MECFS, and you just think it's not one disease; it's lots of different subtypes. It's the same analog, and so what we need here is information. We need data to be able to subtype it and figure out the different clusters and what's going to work for each of those clusters. So your background in the trial stuff, I'm sure, has really transferred over into this of knowing like how to set up patient things, how to gather. That's so cool that that has, of course, transformed into your career for what you're doing now. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, I think the other thing that I've done some work in is is in that human centered design aspect, right? That co-creation. And that's why I felt so strongly when we were doing this registry and and symptom tracking app that it was a co-created effort, Um, because I think particularly in health, there's like um, people tend to be a bit patronizing towards individuals who've got the disease, right? There's like a us and them. We're over here, we're the researchers and the, and the doctors and we know better and you're the person and we are, we are going to do things, treat you, right? You are being done too. And I just feel strongly that that shouldn't be the case, that there's an equality in my opinion. Everybody in the healthcare sort of situation is an equal but different member, right? An individual with a disease knows more about what they're going through than anybody else. You know, the doctor has years of medical school. The researcher has years of scientific discovery. They've each, they're each bringing something to the table, but to me it's an equal thing. And so there needs to be more um, removal of some of those hierarchies. That's also something we try to do in the, in the registry. I don't know if you noticed on our website that we talk about the sense of community anybody who contributes to the registry gets to be a member and if you're a member we're going to tell you when your data are used for research we're going to share research findings back with you Um, and one of the really interesting things we're doing right now is is building out a community-based participatory research um, section and that's where anybody who's in the community can say actually this is an interesting research question would you guys look at I don't know the impact of 
uh, high pollen counts on brain fog, for example. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and um, people can upvote on different ideas and then we, we will feed those ideas to the research community. So that's something we're building out right now. But again, it's all about equality and removal of hierarchies for me. I love how transparent you are about all of that. I mean, God, Facebook could learn a thing or two about that mentality. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't get me started on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, though, too, then, in building that community, then you have participants that are not only in participating in their own discovery of what's happening with the diseases, but also as the collective group, right? So they're more interested in giving you thoughts and ideas and talking about their allergies with pollen because they know that it could be 20 other people that are having pollen issues or, you know, whatever it is. But that, I mean, that is what, especially right now, what everyone is craving is to be part of a different community. And especially those who have chronic fatigue or have long COVID, finding other people that are similar to them is is pretty huge. No, it's massive, right? And I think, I think also, it's going to be really compelling. We're right now we're doing an analysis of all the treatment data, for example. So we're looking at what people are using to feel better to relieve their symptoms. And so that I think that data is going to be really interesting because it allows to, I think it will allow people to say, oh my gosh, there's a community of people just like me. They are all using, you know, medicine X and they all feel better. I'm going to try that too. So mm-hmm. I think, I think in the same way, you know, it will drive research. I think it's also in the short term, like I said, it's going to be empowering and hopefully useful for people already in the community. Um, I I had my own COVID case uh, almost a year ago, and uh, my symptoms lasted well into December. And even to this day, I still get a little bit of brain fog and, and head buzziness. Um, even though my symptoms were so long ago, would you need my information about how my COVID case went? Is that something that I could plug in that could maybe help your research? Is that something that other people can come and do after the fact? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. Come come to the registry. Um, <laughs> oh, say no more. That's how I'm going to spend my afternoon. <laughs> yeah. So if you go to youandmeregistry.com, you'll see, you'll, you know, you can kind of uh, play around with what's on there and there's a button to join the registry we would love that we would love you to join and, and share what you've been experiencing um so that we can you know it, we can add to the data pool and and share your experiences alongside other people's wow maybe i'll reach out to some of our past uh, interviewees and maybe see if they'd be interested in plugging in their experiences as well yeah um, well, Sadie, we love to end on a really positive note, but this has been such a positive conversation, just talking to you and learning more about, you know, bringing communities together to make data accessible and uh, visible to the world. Um, I want to know what is giving you hope right now? What is keeping you going? I think it's what I said before. So it's that sense of of uh, drive and innovation, right? It It's not just coming from the research community or from government or from industry. It's coming from everybody. Everybody wants to do their bit to get out of this pandemic. And I think we'll see that carried on into the long COVID space. We're already beginning to see it in, you know, some of the grassroots organizations that have bubbled up. I think there's a real desire for everybody to work together to do things differently to how they've been done in the past in health. And that to me is just a really exciting moment in time. And I'd love to see it persist. Yeah, same here. I love that. It's a good, it's a good wish for the world. 
Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We appreciate that you took this time to talk to us today. And um, I think the work that you're doing is so phenomenal and should be just applauded and shared throughout the world. I'm so excited to promote this episode and promote you and the work that you're doing. Hopefully we can get a few more people to sign up and join the registry and blog in their symptoms. I know I will. So be on the thank lookout for my info. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I would appreciate that. And um, just to give the website again, it's youandmeregistry.com. And then if you want to follow us on social, it's you at you, me registry on all the platforms. So you can kind of have a dig around and see what we're up to and join our community. We would love that. And just for, to spell that out, it's y-o-u-a-n-d-m-e-r-e-g-i-s-t-r-y.com. Youandmeregistry.com. And we'll link it everywhere, I bet. Oh, yeah. This is the age of social media. Links are everything. <laughs> we'll do some tags. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Sadie Whitaker. It was awesome to talk to you. Of course. Lovely to speak to you, too. Thank you for interviewing me today. Hey, this is Caroline. And Raymond. Thank you so much for listening to Fatigued. From patients to paramedics, long haulers to lessons learned. Sure, it's the same virus, but these are very different stories. If you have a question or a story you'd like us to address on an episode, please email us at fatiguedpodcast at gmail.com. That's F-A-T-I-G-U-E-D podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Clubhouse. Right? Clubhouse, what is that? I don't even know, but whatever it is, we're here to offer genuine conversation so we can humanize the issues surrounding COVID and the pandemic. These stories deserve the space to be remembered, and we relish the opportunity for connection in this isolated time. Perhaps you will, too. Stay positive. Test negative. And thanks for listening. Bye.